0: Welcome to the 15 Past 15 podcast. My name is Joachim Kurz, and I'm very happy to be joined by Professor Barbara Mittler, who teaches Chinese studies at Heidelberg University. Barbara, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Recently, Professor Mittler, together with her colleague Thomas Meissen from the German Historical Institute in Paris, has published a very interesting book called Why China Did Not Have a Renaissance and Why That Matters. So Barbara, tell us, why did China not have a renaissance?
1: Actually, the question is one that I would deny. China did have a renaissance, or at least there are some Chinese actors who would say that they did. They even had several renaissances. Um, But from the point of view of a Europeanist, as Thomas Meissen is, um, China did not have a renaissance. And um, the subtitle of the book is An Interdisciplinary Dialogue, and this whole book is about talking about different positions that one can take towards this question of renaissance, and the question is really one uh, where um, your definition of what you mean when you say renaissance and the way that you also spell renaissance, so the big renaissance, the European renaissance, if we spell it with a capital R, then it has existed only once. And of course China doesn't have one of those. But Whether or not China could have Renaissance, something like that, or could even say that we have had a Renaissance and it's not spelled maybe with a capital R, that's the question. And that's the question that we're debating throughout the book in the form of a very uh, antagonistic dialogue.
0: Right. So maybe you give us your position. (laughs) So if China did have a Renaissance, what did that look like? um, and, And what are the events that are cited?
1: Again, it depends how you would um, define Renaissance. Um, and so um, my, basically my point is that actors have said China has had a Renaissance, Chinese actors, historical actors. Um, and I take what they say as indication of that there was a Renaissance. And so the most important actor who says that in the 19, late 19th, early 20th century is Hu Shi. And Hu Shi um, actually declares a Chinese renaissance, and that's the early 20th century, um, and he even uses the word renaissance in English or French or whatever you want to actually call that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and doesn't use a Chinese term. So mm-hmm. that is important. This Chinese actor actually takes that term, renaissance, and says, we're in it. That's what, what his point is. And what does he define as renaissance? So what's his definition? His of definition of Renaissance is very much um, dependent on what he sees in the European Renaissance. So he thinks that the most important thing in the European Renaissance was that they created vernacular language as or that they created the uh, nobility of the vernacular language, um, and that they, they kicked out the Latin, which, of course, you know, if you look at it as a Europeanist, that wouldn't be the most important thing in the European Renaissance at all. But for Huxi, this is the most important thing that he also thinks needs to happen in China. They want to get rid of the classical language. They want to have the um, spoken language as a written language, as a language um, that can be used for literature and for proper writing. Um, and this is what he thinks will make China sort of walk into modernity directly. And so they need this Renaissance in order to end up as a modern, strong China.
0: Mm-hmm. But if I were to assume um, the position of your counterpart in your book, Thomas Meissen, who cannot be here with us today, I could say, what, but that is so different from the European Renaissance. Why still call it a Renaissance?
1: This is why where I, where I said I take the historical actor's stance. As an analytical term, I wouldn't necessarily say this is a Renaissance. I would just say a Chinese actor has called this Renaissance. He even uses The English French term, Mm -hmm. right, for it, doesn't use a Chinese term. So he considers this a Renaissance. And therefore, we cannot take it away from him again. And also, this Renaissance has become extremely important. It's something that's being uh, sort of recalled now in in the Chinese dream that Xi Xi Jinping is talking about all the time. And it's basically been part of the modernity discourse in in China all along the long 20th century, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can't take that away from China, there is a Chinese Renaissance.
0: But then, (laughs) aren't there Chinese terms that um, would also allude to the idea of a revival, of a rebirth? Uh, Why do they use a a European-derived term to describe this movement that you say brings them into modernity?
1: Um, actually, there have been many, many terms used that are very similar, like fuxing and zai shang. So they, they basically mean uh, rebirth or um, uh, coming back to glory again and, and so on and so forth. Um, and um, these terms are used for previous periods also of Chinese history, so not the turn of the 19th, 20th century, but actually previous um, uh, parts of history, the Tang period, the Han period, because of scholarly learning, and so on and so forth. So there are different periods that are being addressed as renaissances with these other terms, with these Chinese terms. Um, but Hushe says his renaissance is different from these. He also mentions these earlier uh, instances, um, but he says ours is a much better one. And that's why he uses also the, the English term or the French term.
0: Uh-huh. And is the, the Renaissance the only example of that? Or are there also other labels derived from European history, say the, the Enlightenment, <laughs> the Scientific Revolution, that Chinese historians would apply to their own history?
1: The interesting part is that um, the movement that pushes the Chinese Renaissance, uh, the May 4th movement, is a movement that has been alternately called, both by the actors and also by scholars working on it, Chinese Renaissance and Chinese Enlightenment. <laughs> and so you, one can see that you know these terms in, in the way the actors use them um, just basically pick on certain elements that they consider important of, say, the Renaissance. So vernacular language, Um, not so much returning to the ancients, but the vernacular language in in Hush's case, for example, or enlightenment, there it is sort of technological development and then also opening up the minds of the people and so on and so forth. Um, These these are being taken up by the Chinese actors and then they use one or the other term with Mm. their own basically explanation of what one or the other actually is.
0: So you constantly refer to several Chinese actors talking about the Renaissance, so actors in plural. And there have been debates about multiple renaissances. A lot has been written on that. Why do you, in your book, explicitly talk about
1: a a renaissance? We we did debate about changing the title to why China did not have the renaissance and why that matters in order to show that um, what we are talking about is different types of renaissances. And there is the renaissance, and then there may be others. Um, and uh, indeed, of course, many Chinese actors, as I already mentioned, um, have found renaissances a sort of, if, if you use it as an analytical t- term, right, as a recovery of the past or um, other such things uh, in their own history. Um, and therefore, you know, the, this term could be used in the plural. It is not my take I really think that the use of these kinds of terms, English terms for Chinese history, and for sort of making a new kind of periodization scheme um, is maybe not the best thing to do. Um, it might be better to use Chinese terms. it might be better to think of third language terms or whatever, but certainly it's not very useful if if we use terms that are very, very loaded, like Renaissance for describing the history um, of a country where that particular term in that particular language is not being used, right? And but so that's- so, so that's why I can go with Hu who does use Renaissance. And actually not just Hu so it's Chinese actors. It's not just him. There's several other people. If you look at the time in the teens and 20s, there's a lot of journals that come up with A Chinese name and then also Chinese Renaissance or Renaissance or something like that.
0: So, But if there are all these dangers in using European-derived terms, what do Chinese actors hope to gain by mapping their own experiences onto European languages?
1: Um, It's maybe not so much a question of mapping um, their experience onto a European experience, but it's really almost a measure of making themselves become better. That is um it's almost like a superstitious act right if i uh, create a renaissance then i will have an enlightenment and then i will have a modernity so it's it's sort of if if i create that one moment then history history will unravel itself in the way that it has unravelled itself in the world in the successful world mm-hmm. um so it's 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 really trying to make that mechanism that for a while hasn't really worked in China anymore and at the moment when they are changing from lin- from circular history to linear history, they're sort of believing in this new strand, it must work.
0: Let's move on to the question why that matters. I can understand now that for Chinese actors it matters a great deal. Um, why does it matter for the rest of us, historians in Europe, uh, the general audience in Europe, for our understanding of Chinese history?
1: It's not just the understanding of Chinese history. This book is really about Uh, a new way of writing maybe world history or writing global history, depending on which you prefer. Um, I I think that it it is important that uh, Europeanists or people working on other parts of the world um, understand that uh, terms have been appropriated by historical actors, and that means that these historical actors have been thinking about the Renaissance in particular ways, or other things like the Enlightenment in particular ways, and that they have actually maybe also created new ways of thinking, therefore, about what Renaissance could be. So the question, for example, which becomes really, really important to the Chinese actors in the Chinese Renaissance, um, is that women or everyone who has been not so well positioned should be Um, basically support it. So women's renaissance, what about the women's renaissance? We can rethink the the European renaissance um, from the point of view, why didn't it get as far as the Chinese renaissance, for example, did in terms of emancipation of women, emancipation of um, people in, uh, uh, for example, non-aristocratic positions and so on and so forth.
0: Mm -hmm. So so it really has um, a a great bearing on on global history. And I understand, if I get the message of your book correctly, that you also think that requires a new format. The format that your book is taking is basically it's a dialogue uh, where both of you, Thomas Meissen and and yourself, uh, make your points and then argue critically about each other's uh, opinions. Do you think that is a model for interdisciplinary dialogue in history?
1: The book has sort of come into being in, in many, many stages. Um, and it's basically a dialogue that we kept repeating and it kept changing. And so I think, and it's it's really a dialogue. So even the book is, Barbara is speaking, Thomas is speaking, Barbara is speaking, Thomas is speaking. So it's actually um, us talking to each other on the pages of this book. Um, and I think in the making of such a book, um, one realizes that maybe the point that the other side is, is making is quite valid and, and sort of starts rethinking one's own positions, um, and therefore, you know, while while still you know holding on to a certain maybe ground uh, position that one finds or basic position that one finds very very important, but still you know something is moving, and this is the way I think we can we can start writing global history. It must be a history in dialogue, not with specialists from all the fields, not with someone who is a generalist and actually doesn't know anything about anything, um, or doesn't know any of the languages that they are talking about, their actors are using, and so on and so forth, Um, I think that's not such a good way of writing such a global history. It's better if the specialists talk to each other, and of course the specialists will have their very encrusted um, basic positions, um, which, however, may be starting to move or getting into flux. In the process of writing... Did you come up with any other ideas how to
0: go beyond the established writing of global history that has
1: all its shortcomings that you just mentioned? I think, I mean, the dialogue doesn't have to stay a dialogue. And the ideal form, of course, would be if, if you were to write, uh, say, a book about the 19th century or something, that you bring together people, specialists working on different parts of the world, and they start a dialogue that not just between two, but between 10, 15, whatever specialists, right? Um, I think that would be the ideal form. I think that will be a possibility for writing new kinds of histories, but it would have to be um, a a process. And I think um, this has been done with a history of emotions, for example, by Margaret Pernod, where she basically um, brought people together over a period of, I think, five or six years, um, and they would meet every year, and they would basically rework their chapters together. Um, and this, this very dialogic format, I think, might be one that will lead to better global histories, but it's a very time-consuming format. It also is a very painful format, so it, it, it's not easy to constantly question your, the positions that you grew up believing in. And you know the faith that you've had in uh, certain the use of certain terms, for example, um, that are then you know constantly questioned. You you basically no longer able to use revolution in the national way that a Chinese historian would use revolution when you have a, a European historian sitting next to you who will say only one particular thing is a revolution and. The thing that you are talking about is certainly not one, etc. And so, you know, it's a painful process, and it's very time-consuming. And it might lead to less books being written, which might actually be good for the world.